Cassie, could you go downstairs? I'm going to find my mouse. It's going to be really hard to do this without it. All right, we'll start in verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that we present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. How do we know that verse by heart? Remember that verse. It's a great verse, as well as the second verse. Well, of course, all the verses after it, but these are good ones to keep to memory. Verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace that is given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according to, as God hath dealt to every man, the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, all members have not the same office. So we being as many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching, Romans 12, 8 says, or he that exhorteth on ex exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with a simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, and honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, giving to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one to another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things that are honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceable with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place, get, rather give place under wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, if that he thirst, give him drink. And for in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're going to talk a little bit about Romans. How many remember who Romans was written to? But who specifically? I know. I got a bunch of wiseacres over there. I bet you are. Romans was written to Jews. It was written to Jews and Gentiles. Uh, we know Rome, and uh, when, we, when we had talked about Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3, we found that Roman, the Romans was one of the biggest cities of that time, right? There was almost a million people living in Rome when Paul was speaking. So... It's like Chicago. You have all kinds of different walks of life, different people. But the great thing is you come under the heading of Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's dealing with here. He's giving something to the people here. It's what's a picture of your Christian walk. Now, I think about the idea of a picture, and I've used this illustration for baptism. If you've not been baptized in here, I encourage you to. Uh, baptism is an important part, uh, and uh, it's important for you to obey. I have in here a very... Uh, who's got a little handsome looking guy on here? Uh, I would say, hey, who is this guy? And you'd say, oh, that's that's you, Pastor. And I would say, no, it's not. Because you can't talk to this picture and it's not going to answer you back. Um, you can't, uh, I, this picture cannot eat food. This is not me. This is a what? Picture of me. Just like your baptism is a picture of your salvation. It's not literally your salvation. It's just showing you what your salvation is. Your Buried in uh, death and resurrection with Christ. And so we find here in these four different things. And um, let me get this all squared away here. I got my mouse now. So now I can be able to do these things right without. I wish it would work on my iPad. I don't know what I did wrong this time. Um, of course, it'll close all the time on me now. Oh, and then I'm going to lose it over the side. That's even worse. Ah, my goodness. This is precarious. How did Dad do it all these years with that laptop? Oh, that's right. He had this thing kind of hanging over the side. We're not going to do that again. All right. So we find here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the idea of a sacrifice in the altar. And now, before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you just please bless tonight, Lord, again.
keep me in focus. Lord, I know there's a lot here to unpack. But God, I know that you have given this to me. I appreciate, Lord, uh, uh, the preparation that's been put into it. I pray that you just give me grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we find here, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the first picture that we're going to talk about tonight is a sacrifice on the altar. When you think of sacrifice, what do you picture? A lamb, thank you. Um, a sacrifice is something that's given that's going to hurt. It's not something that you just give willy-nilly. It's something that's important to you, something that uh, you value, something that would be hard to let go. And in a sense, a Christian is to be what? Sacrificing to God. What are they to sacrifice according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Well, the Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not just a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. Meaning that basically your life is given over to God in entirety. Not just part way, but all the way. And so we find here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the idea of two things. And I want you to understand, first of all, the Christian who fails is one who has first failed at the altar, refusing so to surrender himself completely to Christ. King Saul failed at the altar in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 8 and 15, verse 10, and it cost him his kingdom. What was Saul's problem? Saul was one of these individuals who had become wrapped up in his own understanding and his own desires. We can think of a couple times that Saul, and then here we should open it up here. Can somebody tell me what Saul's first mistake was? Okay, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Right. Samuel was supposed to come. How long was the time period? Seven days. When did Samuel come and when did Saul create the sacrifice? Right. He wasn't completely surrendered to say, okay, God, whatever you want, whatever it takes, this is what you've told me, and it's not my job to do it. It's, the, it's Samuel's job. And so he instead did that. What was the second mistake that Saul did that finally Christ took the kingdom away from him? You're on the right, you're on the right track. Malachites, okay? The Malachites were someone that God had wanted to destroy. Does anybody remember why the Malachites had to be destroyed? They were evil, but what did they do to the children of Israel? Yes. When they were coming into the promised land, right? And because of that, God says, I'm going to judge you for doing that to my children. Again, Saul had a great opportunity here to show uh, God's judgment, God's uh, uh, discipline, uh, God's almighty character, but instead what did he do? He kept back the king, he kept back the sheep, he kept back all the things. If you look at Jericho, it's the same thing. God told him to destroy everything when it came to Jericho. Why? Because it was a wicked, wicked city. And God thought the same thing as the Amalekites. Um, there is some things to be said. If you go into, uh, you do some research, you'll find that uh, King, uh, Haman and Esther was an Amalekite. And if you go into some research, it's really interesting. Just take a look at it once in a while. I'm not going to go into it because i got so much on my plate right now. We won't get through it. The motivation of our sacrifice and is dedication is love. And I love this because this really speaks to the heart of what I think Christian service should be. How many times do you do things out of duty? You get up in the morning and you realize uh, because you fear God, you have your devotions. You're afraid if you don't. Uh, God's going to come down and he's going to discipline you. And he will. God will judge sin. But what should your main focus be? It's love. If you're only concerned about God's judgment, then you're not really getting the crux of what God has done for you and how much God has loved you. And, and Paul says, he says, Paul doesn't say I command you, but what? I beseech you. Because God has already done for you. He's already done. He's given you the mercies that you need. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. We already have them. We serve him out of love and appreciation. Do you serve God out of love and appreciation? What's your purpose of being here tonight? I hope it's because you love God. You know, I, I find Christians, can, especially myself, when you're given a task to do, sometimes you drag your feet because you're so fleshly. I'm so fleshly. 
doing? Where is my love for Christ? Do I love him as much as I would say I love food? <laughs> Boy, we, that's a hard thing to battle, right? We all love food. We don't miss a meal, do we? Monday, we get up, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and stack, snacks in between, don't we? How many would say, I can't do without God? Monday morning, devotions in the morning, devotion in the afternoon, devotion in the evening. It should be that way, right? I love my food. Well, don't you love spiritual food? Don't you want to be spiritually fed? And I think that's what Paul's trying to get out here. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Do you love Christ to the point that you just, you want to serve him? I love my wife. I love my children. Are there things that I do for my children that I would not do for anyone else? Absolutely. There are things that I go out of my way for my wife because I love her. And the same way it should be with our love for Christ. True dedication is presenting the body, mind, and will to God day by day. And some Christians will do this. They'll say, well, I'm really serious about God, so what will they do? They'll come down here and they'll put themselves at the altar and they might repent for one thing or repent one day. But the truth is it's more than just that. It's being renewed in your mind day by day. Surrendering the will through prayer and obedience. Every Christian is either two things. You're either conforming or you're transforming. What does it mean to transform? Uh... If you turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2. The Bible tells us in verse 2. And was transferred, talking about uh, transfigured before them. And his face did shine like the sun. And his raiment was white as the light. So the idea that he was totally different. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 tells us, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. When you are transformed, you're no longer that same person, look the same way, act the same uh, 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 fleshly attitude. Instead, you're different. Now, this is, I feel like this is my Sunday night crowd. Most folks here, are serious about their Christian life. Why are they serious? They come on Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, they come Thursday night, they do what they, they believe God has done for them. But there's always a sense that we are con either conforming or transforming. You're either obeying the world and what the world dictates is right, or you're transforming to what God ex expects as righteousness. You're saying, God, please change me from the inside out. It's a constant Ability to transfigure yourselves. We allow the Spirit to reveal Christ through the Word, and it's only the believer that is dedicated to God that we can know God's will for his life, for our lives. So keep this in mind. Sister D, if you want to come over to this side, I'm sorry about that, son. We came in here and we put these, these windows up and we thought it would be nice to have half windows. And then everybody comes in, they're like blinded when they go over and sit on that side. So but uh, I apologize if you'd like to sit on you can. Transforming is one of those attitudes that says, you know what? I'm transfigured. Meaning, allowing the spirit to literally reveal itself in your life. You know, I think there's something to be said about us. We are so selfish. We're constantly thinking about ourselves only. I, I read this this morning in this, this leadership book. I thought it was hilarious. Little boy, a little uh, uh, taking his boy to um, uh, a young dad and taking his little boy to McDonald's, and on their way, they see this horrible accident. And of course, the father is just burdened with compassion about these folks, and, and uh, he says, he tells his little boy, he says, son, he says, pray for those young men, or whoever's in that car, that they're okay. So the boy bows his head, and he says, dear God, please help us get the, those cars don't get in the way of us getting to McDonald's. And that's kind of the same attitude that some Christians have, don't they? They're constantly thinking about me, right? They're not transfiguring themselves over to God. What does God want me to do? How does God want me to li live? Some people think that God has three different wills. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, it's not like the Starbucks menu. 
Can somebody tell me which one of those are? I still get this confused. Is it tall, venti, and grande? Did I get it right? They, they, they just say small, medium, large, which doesn't make See, that's why we should just go to Dr. Doug's. They don't use all these fancy words on you. Uh, blue collar guy, you know what I'm saying? I, just tell me small, medium, or large. I don't need all these different. Actually, it's funny because tall, venti, and grande, all the same thing, I think. And it's like they're trying to confuse you. So they order the biggest one. Or you order something you don't want to get. It's tall. Oh, tall. I'm thinking tall. Tall, tall, right? Don't. And you get something different. Okay, I'm getting out of control here. But some people think God is like a Starbucks menu, right? You get your three choices. <laughs> Perfect, right? Good and acceptable. Rather, I think God's given us an understanding of each of those. We grow in our appreciation of God's will. Some Christians obey God because they know obedience is good for them and they fear ch chastening. And that's not all wrong. Don't get me wrong. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Others obey God because they find God's will acceptable. But the deepest devotion in those who love God will find it perfect. You know, when we're concentrated upon God, it's just the perfect plan. You ladies, when you go out shopping, I don't know. I don't think anybody in our church is a big shoe, shoe person. I am. And uh, my mom was the same way. She had the child. We would, I don't know. I thought I, I would die in some of those shoe stores growing up. We would go there, and my mom would try on like 50 pairs. And I'm like, are we done yet? It's kind of like the same way when I go to Harbor Freight. I'm sure the kids are like, oh. You know, you're looking for that perfect purchase. But when you find God's will, you'll see it is the perfect will. There's nothing else that you can get around it. I knew when, I was telling Sister Kim this this morning, when I found the bride of my life, it was it. There was no one else for me. I was thankful that God gave me that understanding. I knew when I was saved. Now, I did have some doubts, but that was due to sin later on. But you know what? I knew when I was saved, it was because God had saved me, and nobody else could take that away from me. I knew when God had called me to preach. Listen to me. The sad thing is I denied that call for many years. But when God had called me to preach, I knew it in my heart. I remember running to my dad, his 15-year-old boy. Dad, Dad, I think God's called me to preach. I went to Bible college and Satan deceived me. I spent 20 years in, in the wilderness. Well, actually, it's less than 20 years. What's 22 minus 30, 30, 39, 37, something like that. But you know, I think about that, and I think God has always given us an acceptable, perfect will. It's not just something that you can pick and choose from. It's not like going to the McDonald's value meals. You know, it's amazing. I was talking to Sohaib. He was saying that he could find a, a, a hamburger in Jordan for 40 cents. And the other day, I saw, believe it or not, in the 70s, when McDonald's was just starting to really get popular, you know, in the 72 or 76, I think it was when they had their university here over here in Des Plaines. You could get a quarter pounder for 40 cents in the 70s. Now you go there and you're going to spend at least six bucks for a quarter pounder. I, I'm thankful for that because if I ate that, I'd be even bigger than I am today. Forty cents, oh my goodness. But you know what? The idea is that God is not something that you just pick and choose. It's always perfect. It's like going to the restaurant and the restauranteur brings you out your food and he just plops it in front of your face. And you're like, that's exactly what I wanted. It's the same way with God's will. God will always give you the best way forward. As priests, we are to present ourselves as spiritual sacrifices to God. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Ye also as lively stones, and we preach the whole message on that, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The very first sacrifice He wants is our body, mind, and will, total surrender to Him. I think it's important to understand that as we look at this, we are a sacrifice on the altar of God. It is something that we need to take and really be serious about. Total surrender. I don't think anybody knows what total surrender is. Very few people understand that. I, my, I myself included. There are still things in my life that I still am struggling with in total surrender. And I would say if most of you are here, I would say most of you would probably say, I can say the same thing, Pastor. I agree with you. What are we going to do with total surrender? Well, God can do miraculous things. I've been reading. Um, Brother, Brother Bill, our, 
books in Pastor Auger's uh, library. But I found some books that I'm going to try to read. Actually, I've given this to Tony and, and, uh, and How to Succeed in the Christian Life by R.A. Torrey. Um, he Inbounds, Power Through Prayer, um, How to Pray, um, The Necessity of Prayer, and The Power of Prayer by R.A. Torrey. And I thought about this because after reading another book that just kind of led me to understand, we don't take prayer seriously. We don't take it as total surrender. And we get up in the morning and we spend a little ditty saying, God, please help me today at that. And then we walk away thinking that we pray. God wants to hear more than just, thank you, God. God is good. God is great. Thank you for this food we ate. Amen. God wants to hear your personal cry. He wants to hear your needs. He wants to hear you spend time talking to him, loving him. That's total sacrifice. Secondly, not only do we find that it's a total sacrifice, but number two, we find that we're a member of the body. A member of the body. Go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 3 and 8. Maybe some of you are still there. But Romans chapter 12, verse 3 and 8. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, it says in verse 3, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of him so much. I'm making sure I'm in the right place. Yes, sorry. For I say unto you, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and even one member is one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I think the uh, the First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 is, uses some of those same truths in those verses. The believer is baptized into the spirit of the body. And he's given gifts to use for the benefit of the whole church. I think of down here in some of your guys' professions, you know. I think of Brother Truesdale. He's a teacher, right? All your life. You've gone to many schooling, years of schooling. I guess that's a gift. Teaching's a gift. There's many other things that we can find here that talk about it. But there is a local body, and each believer ministers to the Lord. Most of uh, the 112 references to the New Testament to the church refer to a local congregation of baptized believers. Service in the local body, though, begins with personal dedication. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant that ye know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Listen, you have a personal dedication to the church and to God's people. Now, when I say that, I'm not just saying that you're dedicated to the building, but you're dedicated to the people of the church. Understanding that when you go outside the bounds of the church and you live in sin, you're a discouragement to the church. When you go out and you neglect the church, guess what? You're a discouragement to the church. When you forsake the assembling of the church, you're a discouragement to the church. You say, what do you mean? Well, everybody depends on you. And you might think, I'm not important. You are important. The Bible talks about some of these members. If you go to 1 Corinthians, you see some of those things that we, uh, I think we talked about this morning. Was it the comely parts, right? That's important. You are an important part of the church. And some people say, well, I don't feel important. Well, you know what? You are. So you better act like it. You say, what does that mean? You know, when you come to church or you go to a business, what do you see? Someone walks in and they are the most important person in the room. Now, I don't know. Maybe these millennial companies are a little bit different. Maybe he's wearing tank tops and shorts. You know, uh, he's got his pair of kangaroos on. I don't know. But here he walks in and he's kind of. Dressed, uh, usually when you go into a corporate CEO uh, business meeting, there's most guys. Uh, most of the guys are sitting around a table. They're together. They're talking. They're dressed right. They're dressed sharp. Why? Because it's a business, and they're part of this business, and they have importance about this business. I'm not saying you have to dress a certain way per se. What I'm saying is, 
you put yourself in the midst of it. You're busy about it. You're finding ministries to be involved in. You say, Pastor, we're a small church. Great, let's start a ministry. You're going to head it up. You say, Pastor, really? Absolutely. Why not? People just look to the pastor for their ability to see ministry happen. It's not going to happen. I have problems of being able just to be able to get my shoes on in the morning sometimes. Let alone trying to create ministry after ministry all by myself. God has given you the same responsibility that God has given me. That is to minister to the church. It might look different. You might not be up here preaching every Sunday. But God has given you that ministry. Take it seriously. An honest evaluation of spiritual gifts the believer possesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Wherefore I give to you understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. If you're going to be able to give the church the proper ability to be a member of the body, you have to first have the Holy Ghost. You have to be able to be saved. You have to be uh, living for Him. And if you're not filled with the Holy Ghost, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, listen, you're going to have a hard time using those gifts that God has given you. How do we get the, filled with the Holy Spirit? All right, now you guys are kind of giving me... Sister Kim, if you need to move, I see it. See, Diana's over there blinding herself. I don't know, you're getting ready for Bible. Uh, you guys need to move again. Don't, I'm, don't, don't think I'm going to call you out or anything. So you need to move, move. But what, is, what does it mean to be filled by, with the Holy Spirit? Okay, saved. What, what does it mean to be filled day by day? Yes. Living in the Spirit is what? Letting the Holy Spirit take control. I think sometimes Christians don't realize this. Yes, the Holy Spirit lives in you, but He's not a part of you. He's part of you. The, the, your flesh is basically... He is a part of you, but sometimes, you know, we have so much fleshly living that the Holy Spirit can't do His work. We're constantly being bombarded by sin, and what do you think the Holy Spirit's doing in the background? He's holding His nose. Christians, if we're ever going to have spiritual discernment with spiritual gifts, we need the Holy Ghost to be a part of it. Paul does not tell us to think of ourselves or what we can do, but rather that we do not think of ourselves more highly than our spiritual gifts warrant. Here's an example. If a man is called the pastor, God will reveal it as he uses his gifts in the assembly. Now, I'll be honest with you. This church... Voted on me to be their pastor. Now, you weren't there. But there were people there that believed that I could, I could do the job. And I think every church has to come to that conclusion. You should never bring someone before the church to ordain them if they don't have the ability to take care of the house of God. I think that's the reason why God's given us so many um, uh, qualifications for pastors and deacons. Our gifts may differ. As I said, my wife, she's not going to get up here and preach. Maybe she'd like to. I don't know. Just kidding. But they all come from the Spirit. and They're all to be used to the glory of God. You have a gift to teach. You should be teaching. You have a gift to be able to sing. Get up here and sing. If you have a gift to be able to talk to people and spend time witnessing to people, and you have a quick ability to think, and you can go out there. Listen, everybody should be a soul winner, but listen to me. If you have a great ability to be an evangelist, do it. Why? Because that is a gift that God has given you. The Holy Spirit shows us those gifts. Just like we are saved by grace through faith, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, verse, verse 9. So we are to exercise our spiritual gifts according to the measure of faith. Romans 12, 3 says, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according to God hath dealt to every man, what? The measure of faith. You know, the little bit more faith that you have, the more God will show to you what you need to do. I love the story of D.L. Moody. And not just because he's a Chicagoan, but that God took him and used just a, poor, a really good salesman to reach the world for, for Christ. Actually, R.A. Torrey, I did not know this. How many of you have heard of J. Murray McGee? He wrote, R.A. Torrey read, wrote a lot of books. Do you know who R.A. Torrey is? Anybody? I say, Pastor, who are these guys that you're introducing to the church? 
predecessor at Moody for a short time after Moody passed. Now here's something more interesting. How many heard of J. Vernon McGee? J. Vernon McGee pastored the same church that R.A. Torrey started, the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles. So R.A. Torrey basically had some great things that God had done. One of the biggest churches in Los Angeles was the Open Door, and it wasn't because he preached uh, uh, modern liberalism. He preached the Bible, and he stood by the Word of God. God did some great things. I don't know what the amount of people that were saved during his ministry, but I'm sure it's in the tens of thousands of people because he was serious about what God wanted him to do. God has given each of us a gift, and listen, if we don't use it, we'll never be able to see what God can do. D.L. Moody was one of those guys. He was literally someone who said, I, the world has not yet seen a man who has surrendered for him, completely, totally surrendered for him. He said, I'll be that man. He was surrendered completely. Some of the stories go that he was so distraught about his ability to speak, and believe me, <laughs> right there with him. He was so distraught that he hired Sunday school teachers to teach street urchins in the city of Chicago. Because he did not think he could teach. He said, one of the critics, when they first talked about D.L. Moody, that he slaughtered the King's English. He was that bad. But what did D.L. Moody do through the grace of God? He took two continents for God. There were revivals in New Zealand, Australia, England, and even in America. He shook the next generation, men like H.A.R. Ironside. And even my uh, previous pastor all came out of that ministry. You say, why is that? Because he was not uh, allowing his gifts to be held back. He was willing to give the grace that God had given him to use it. The proportion of faith that God gives him. Now, there are seven different ministries that we have here tonight, and I knew this was going to take a little bit more time, so maybe I'll break it up into two. Seven different ministries. All right, look at them. Look at them. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3. Actually, we're, I take that back. Stay in Romans, but 1 Corinthians 14, 3, keep your, uh, put your finger in there if you're already there. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3, or 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, you find the different types of ministries. All right, who can tell me the different ministries? Seven different ministries. Yeah, go ahead, Tony. Okay. Yeah. Good job. Two more, or three more. Yes. You must have, you've already heard this before, haven't you? Okay. All right. Ruling and showing mercy. All right. Showing mercy. Those are all gifts and also different ministries that we can do. Now, prophecy, I ask you, what is prophecy? Brother Bill, what do you think prophecy is? Predict the future or state what could happen in the future. Um, now, again, the Bible says prophecy will cease. Okay? Um, who was it? Harold Camping. He was cursed the Harold name. Okay? But Harold Camping got up and what did he say? He was part of the family radio hour or something like that and he says, Lord's coming back. I remember this is back in the early 2000s. He had billboards out there stating the Lord's coming back at this such and such date. Guess what? He didn't. And you know what happened? The man had a stroke. He still kept changing his time. Time frame even after that. Didn't repent. Prophecy is, is not the same that you think of today, but prophecy is still used. I can sit down by reading God's word and I can say, listen, um, if you continue this route, the Bible says this is going to happen to you. Right? If you, if you continue uh, to flirt with sin, well, let me tell you, there's been a few examples here. I can prophesy to you, you've got a problem coming. 
Bible says, train up a child the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, there is some promise there, but there's also an opportunity to say, hey, I'm not saying that every parent, this is their fault. But when you look at this Bible, you can say, look, I can see this in your child. You need to be careful with it. You know, if you plant your child in front of television, <laughs> I've known a few people that have done that. As your babysitter, tonight I was, the girls were all excited about, I try to keep it about two hours a week, television. Uh, I don't know how much time you guys spend, but uh, I hope it's two hours. Mom, is any more than that? Maybe even an hour sometimes, once a week. So then I'll sit down and watch a, a, a good movie. But you know what's interesting? You sit your kids in front of the idiot box, eventually they're going to be just like the idiot box. They're going to be, what, given over to lust for flesh. You'll spend 24-7 under a non-reality of a video game, your kid's going to be in non-reality. You know, I could say the same thing about your relationship. If you're a married man or a married woman and you spend time, all your time with another woman or another man, even though you're having no romantic relationship with them, you could develop a sense of a romantic relationship and not even know it. You know, there are pro things that I could prophesy. I could say if you miss church, eventually you're going to never come back. I remember there was a lady in our church who talked to my father about some advice and she didn't listen to him. He says, you better. He's talking about, you know, she was a single mother and she was going back to school for something. And he says, you know, maybe you should wait until your kids, you only had a few more years, but wait until your kids get out of school and, and really concentrate on them. She didn't listen to him. Now they're basically atheists. You say, why is that? Mom didn't listen. Dad prophesied to her. He says, you need to think about this. Prophecy can be something that you can just predict in the future from God's word. I'm not saying I have it some written in the wall. It's not like I'm talking about the Bounce of Sazar and Daniel prophesying. Tico, Tico, uh, mini Eupharson, you know. But it does tell us that there are some things in the word of God that you just cannot break. It's like the laws of physics. You jump up in the air, Chloe, what happens? What? You're going to come back down, aren't you? Unless you're Chloe, then you start floating up because she's an angel. No, I'm just kidding. The Bible says very clearly there's prophecy. What's another one here? Number two, ministry. Ministry. I'm going to find out why this thing's not working on my iPad. Ministry. Well, you could say that ministry, what's another word for ministry? Good job. Servant. Minister is supposed to be what? Someone who is a servant. Minister to their needs, right? Ministry could be pastoring. It could be being a deacon. That is ministry. You're serving. The reason for a deacon was what? Anybody remember? Serving tables, right? They're to serve the tables of the, the Greek women. Not the Jews. The Jewish women, they were being, the Greek women were being, um, what's the word? Thank you. Neglecting. And so basically, he says, well, we're not getting people taken care of here. So, hey, let's just, let's get some deacons going. God gave some requirements for deacons. Number three, not only do we have uh, being a deacon, but thirdly, we find teaching. That is a great responsibility. Paul told Timothy, he says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Timothy, I love uh, David Cloud had a magazine, it was called O Timothy. But really, that's exactly what teachers are, right? Right, Brother Truesdale? What are you doing as a teacher? What are you doing? You're passing on knowledge from the past, right? And maybe some of the present. But you're really bringing on knowledge. You're going back. Sometimes people go all the way back to Aristotle, uh, Plato, and Socrates. And they study them, and they bring their information. They talk about different things in math and science that we have learned down through the ages, or maybe currently are learning it. We put that in people's minds, and they take that, and they run with it. No different. Actually, it's little. It's a lot different, in the sense that you're giving absolute truth from the Word of God. 
Sometimes science will change. Amen? Math, they'll come up with another way. I gotta go back. I gotta say this. You that don't like coffee, I'm not gonna say shame on you. But you know what? They have said three or four times coffee is unhealthy for you, and then they say coffee is good for you. Alright? Don't drink coffee and then drink coffee. Alright? Listen, science is always changing. Wait ten years. They're gonna say, oh, coffee's bad. I remember as a kid, I remember the pyramid food tree that they came out with, right? What was at the very bottom of that food tree? Anybody remember the pyramid? Vegetables and what else? Grains, right? And you had to, all the grains you could eat, all the carbs you could eat. Now, they're telling you, go eat a Big Mac without the bun, okay? That's healthy. <laughs> But the truth is, science will change. But with Christianity, you're always teaching, or you should be, teaching absolute truth. They're from the Word of God. And so if you are a teacher, and you've not applied that gift to Christianity, listen to me, you're losing out. You're giving opportunity to the next generation to hear the gospel, and understand the gospel, and run with it. It's a great gift. I'm really out of time but let's go on. I'm going to try to get these seven done, and then we'll save the next for next week. Number four, exhorting. Exhorting. What is exhorting? It's suggesting, uh, it suggests urging people to serve the Lord and be faithful to Him. Evangelist does that, don't they? A preacher does that, don't they? I hear some of you folks being faithful to witness in your family. I'm rooting for you. All the way. Listen to me, there's great opportunity there. You exhort others to live by faith. Giving, giving. It should be done out of singleness of heart with pure motives. <laughs> Listen, we found some series of people that did not want to do it out of pure motives. They are giving to be recognized of men. You say, why don't you pass the plates, Pastor? I don't want people to be recognized by men. I don't want the unsaved to give out of works. I want to put it back there. People know. If they truly want to give, you know what they'll do? They'll find it. People say, hey, well, there's no tithing envelopes. Okay, I'll take care of it. People want to know. They want to take care of it. Number six, ruling. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You find two verses of ruling. You say, Pastor, ruling in the Bible? Ruling in the Bible, really? Now, automatically, we understand one thing about ruling. Who is in charge of ruling? Who rules our hearts? Who should rule our hearts? Christ. But that does not mean that certain people have responsibilities. And they're underneath Christ, and Christ has given them a responsibility to rule. It's not like a king or a dictatorship. You're not doing things out of your own will. You're doing things out of the will of God. You're a family man. You have children. You have a wife. Listen, your responsibility is to rule your house well. And it says in 1 Timothy chapter four, 3, verse 4, it says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Here we go again. Verse 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their house as well. Again, ruling pertaining to not only the government, but the local church and also the home. There are three aspects to that ruling, and it really has a broad coverage. If God has given, listen to me, if you're a father here today, guess what? You're a ruler. You're ruling your home. Okay? Not as a dictatorship, as I said, in the will of God. You have a great responsibility. If you're a single mother in here, guess what? You're ruling your home. You're the one that's taking that responsibility because God has given it to you. Whether the, the husband's out of the picture or he's dead, whatever way it is, God has given you that responsibility. Take it. Use it. It's a gift that God's given you to do. You should use it wisely. If you're a person that is an authority in your job, rule well. Rule well. It's a gift that God has given you. And also in the church. Well, as a pastor, I have a great responsibility, don't I? 
I need to be careful that I am giving what God has given. We cannot be always going about our own desires, our own uh, uh, happiness, our own blessings, but only by what God wants. Sometimes man will, man's will gets in the way of what God wants. Then we have number seven, showing mercy. The personal ministry to those in need. I love this because there's many things that the Christian believer has abandoned because of our society today. If you ever want to read a great book on compassion and charity, it's called uh, The Tragedy of American Compassion. And it really goes into detail how America used to believe in charity, how they dealt with charity. And it's been completely changed since the government has taken it over. Uh, it's a dangerous thing to try to serve the Lord when no gift has been given. It is also tragic to use a gift for His glory, uh, to use a gift without Him and bringing it to His glory. Uh, there's a couple examples, and we'll get into this in just a minute. I'm going to stop here in a second. I want to park on this. I didn't realize that was the next point. But I want you to understand something, that mercy is an important part. If you don't have mercy, you don't have compassion, you're going to struggle with helping others. We'll get, we'll get into next week. The Bible says to what? Use hospitality without grudging. Without grudging, I should say. You know, it's interesting because I've seen people over the years who, all right, I'll do it, Pastor. I love my parents. I really do believe God saw the heart of my mom and dad when they were, before he was a pastor in Southern Baptist Church. Every missionary that came to our church they wanted to win. And nobody was fighting for it. <laughs> Southern Baptist Church, I don't know if it wasn't just a big deal, but if they come over, they were like, Pastor, we want them over at our house. We're going to feed them. We're going to take care of them. Whatever they need, bring them over. I was a young kid. I got to meet all kinds of missionaries. You know, I was just talking to a missionary the other day. I completely forgot about him. His name was uh, Darwin Tobias from the Philippines. Parents just picked him up out of nowhere. And when we were eating supper, I remember there's there was times we'd have people at our supper table. I had no idea who they were. There was a truck driver from Swift that wanted to go to church. And so we picked him up for church. And guess where he ended up? At our supper table. Why? Because they believed in hospitality. It's missing in America. We're losing it. Why? Because Christianity is missing in America. True Christianity. True love, true compassion, true, true mercy. When you're true, totally absorbed with yourself, absorbed with your wishes, absorbed with your will, you'll never have any type of mercy. Why? Because it's always inward looking and not outward looking. Christ says we need to be careful with that. That mercy that God gives you, don't overlook it. Realize that is a gift that God has given. Don't try to be ignorant of it. And let me close with this. We're done. One last thing to, to mention about the ministry, and that is, number one, there were men who tried to do the work of God without the Holy Ghost from his gifts. Turn your, the Bibles to Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. 19 verse 1. Came to pass... That while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And he said, Unto John's baptism. Then Paul, John, verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. And that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. Notice what it took. Identification with the Holy Spirit. And listen, it's important to understand that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not going to do the great works that God wants you to do. There was another group of men. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Uh, and we're going to start in verse 13. I always laugh at this one. It's not really something funny. Because uh, it's it's really sad. And 
it was something that uh, these men didn't understand. Verse 13 says, Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had an evil spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Skeba, a Jew, a, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Listen, if you're going to have the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do great, great works. But these men obviously did not have it. When they went in there, what did they do? They were destroyed. They were defeated. They could not do the work that God wanted them to do. They thought, oh, this is easy. I've seen Paul do it. I've seen others do it. Boy, this is going to be simple. That's kind of the way I thought about pastoring. Oh, I've seen my dad do it. Dad can do it. I can do it. Yeah, right. I need the Holy Spirit to do it. And Christian, listen to me today. Your week is going to be filled with all kinds of things. And again, this is teaching. But here's a little application for you. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. And how do you get the Holy Spirit to do the work? It starts with an earnest desire for God to change you. And that starts with prayer. Prayer. Get on your knees. I'm not saying a 15-minute ditty in the morning. I'm saying seriously crying out to God. Spending time worshiping Him. Spending time quoting the Scripture to God. Saying, God, I, I really, truly want you to see you work. If you search with Him all your heart, you will find Listen, as you're dealing with some gigantic tasks, remember the Holy Spirit is your comforter, the Holy Spirit is your guide, the Holy Spirit is your teacher, the Holy Spirit is your helper. If you forget that, you'll be just like these men who thought they could do the will of God without the Holy Spirit. Just like the men who said, I'm going to cast out this demon. Listen, I'll stop there right there. Cast out a demon is a serious thing. They didn't see it as serious. Christian, don't be deceived by Satan to think that you can do everything through the flesh. Do it through the Spirit of God. You can't have God's...